a faltering revolution in Tunisia today, Thursday, February 7th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Tunisia is in turmoil after the assassination of a leading opposition figure. His funeral tomorrow could be a key test of the country's stability. At the moment, it doesn't seem like the government has complete control over the security forces. We'll get the view from Tunis and also from Algeria next door. And later, where top chefs like to eat when they're not on the job. We've got a herring wagon in Stockholm. Mm. We've got a place that does something called a wet burger in Istanbul, which is a burger that they steam in this chili sauce. Plus how a former Guantanamo detainee ended up making pizzas in Albania. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Tunisia is gripped by growing uncertainty today. There were more protests in the North African nation, which was the cradle of the Arab Spring. The unrest comes in response to the assassination of a leading opposition leader yesterday. The country's prime minister had earlier announced plans to dissolve his government and replace it with a unity coalition, but the prime minister's own Islamist party rejected the plan, throwing the country into political chaos. And there are plans for massive demonstrations tomorrow. Freelance journalist Fadil Aleriza is in Tunis. You've been out on the streets of Tunis today, Fadil, in the middle of protests and tear gas. Tell us what you saw. Well, today uh, there were a lot of young people on the streets in downtown Tunis. They were out in solidarity for the slain opposition leader Shukri Bel Aid, and vans of police were roving around downtown, shooting tear gas canisters into the crowds of students who were largely peaceful, although there were reports of stone throwing from both sides. And when the protesters were dispersed, often within 15, 20 minutes, they would regroup. This continued throughout the day, although there are also reports from other parts of the country, including the town of Gafsa, where there were more serious clashes between police and protesters. And are these young people just supporting the, the slain opposition leader, uh, Belaid, or are they also, do they also have grievances against the current government? Well, the slain uh, politician was popular among student groups. He, he had been a leader of a student union when he was at university. He had been an activist. And as a lawyer, he has defended student groups that were protesting against Ben Ali prior to the revolution. There's also a lot of anger for other issues, and, and that's coming out in the streets. Unemployment is still fairly high, hovering around 20%. And there's a lot of anger that, with uh, the government, which seems to have not done much in terms of reform, in terms of reforming police, in terms of reforming justice. So there's a lot of other issues that are adding to the anger that, uh, you know, this killing of Belid has sort of become a wedge issue. And we should see more tomorrow because tomorrow is the funeral of Shukri Belaid. At the same time, the largest union in the country, the UGTT, has uh, agreed to hold a general strike tomorrow. So what kind of day is it going to be tomorrow, Friday, with all these demonstrations and strikes if they do go through with these strikes? Well, we'll have to wait and see. At the moment, it doesn't seem like the government has complete control over the security forces. The question is really whether tomorrow can be a, a day of peaceful protest. 
sort of a step towards a new government. We see pressure on the current government from the street, but also from opposition. So it's unclear what will happen tomorrow, but I think uh, the people that will be out at the funeral uh, of Shukri Balaid will not be there to create violence. We'll see what the, the security forces' response will be like. I don't think I recall protests this big since President Ben Ali was run from the country. How would you characterize what this moment means for the revolution in Tunisia? What's at stake here? I think the revolution itself is at stake. In many ways, the post-revolutionary system has not lived up to people's aspirations. And whether we'll see some new governing coalition or whether we'll see uh, set dates for elections, those are important questions that I think the people will want to see answered. And I think the government response in the next couple of days is really going to be a measure of that. Freelance journalist Fadil Aliriza in Tunis, thank you very much. Thank you. Algerians look next door at the turmoil in Tunisia, and they shudder. It reminds them of Algeria's own past troubles and its civil war in the 1990s. So says Time magazine's Vivian Walt, who's in the capital, Algiers. The great specter is that there will be a return of Islamic parties and uh, militant Islamic organizations, which is what the civil war focused on in the 1990s. Nearly 200,000 people were killed during the 90s here in Algeria. So everybody you meet in Algeria has lost loved ones in some terrible, violent conflict. And they look over at at Tunisia and they see what they might become if there is a popular uprising here. Now, there were 11 Tunisians among the militant group that tried to take over uh, the Inamenis gas field last month in southern Algeria. That must have sent shivers through the government. You, you've written that hostage siege was, in a way, Algeria's 9-11. How is that? It was a major shock, even though it was in a remote part of the desert. No one ever thought that they would be attacked on Algerian soil. The whole government in Algeria is based on the fact that they can keep al-Qaeda at bay and that al-Qaeda has been operating in other parts of the region, but not here in Algeria. They struck really at, uh, you know, the lifeblood of the country, which is oil and gas. So a lot of things are going to have to change in this country. The big question now is whether it will extend towards more political freedoms or whether, in fact, Algerians will be scared that the opening up of their um, country to more democracy and more freedom might also allow in radical Islamic elements like what they see in Tunisia. And that for them is a lot scarier than the lack of democracy. Well, I mean, indeed, I mean, Algerian officials have come under a lot of criticism, I gather, for never tracking down the alleged mastermind of the hostage siege uh, at that gas plant, the the guy Mokhtar, Bel Mokhtar. What steps are they taking? For a long time, the Algerian government was content to let Bel Mokhtar be, so long as he didn't operate on home soil in Algeria. But that clearly has broken down as the whole Al-Qaeda movement in this part of Africa has become much more regional and a lot richer, of course. They have uh, resources. They have a huge injection of weaponry from Muammar Gaddafi's arsenal in the the collapse of Gaddafi's rule in Libya, which is right next door. So they are having to rethink completely their whole counterterrorism strategy. From Washington's perspective, what role might Algeria play in in trying to battle the rise of jihadist groups in North Africa? 
In Washington's mind, Algeria is, as one person put it, crucial if not decisive in the battle against al-Qaeda in the Maghreb in North Africa. They have by far the biggest military. I mean, nobody even touches them in this region. They have a huge network of surveillance and intelligence across North and Central and West Africa. However, it's also a very, very closed system. And Algeria has really spent the last 15 years somewhat sealing itself off from discussing things with its neighbors openly. It keeps its intelligence to itself. And that is beginning slowly to change. And some believe it will change in the wake of the gas field attack. Time magazine's Vivian Walt, based in Paris. She joined us, though, from the Algerian capital, Algiers. Vivian, thank you. You're welcome. Spain recently made a generous offer to welcome back the descendants of Jews who were kicked out of the country more than 500 years ago. It promises fast-track naturalization and even immediate access to passports. But there is a hitch, as the world's Jerry Haddon explains. Spain's Justice Minister Alberto Ruiz Gallardón announced the offer to descendants of Spain's former Jews in November at a Jewish center in Madrid. In the long camino that Spain has recorrido He said, on the long journey Spain has undertaken to rediscover a part of herself, few occasions are as moving as today. The measure we're announcing will let anyone who can prove their Sephardic origins obtain Spanish nationality. In 1492, the Catholic kings Ferdinand and Isabella expelled the Jews from what is now modern-day Spain. Those who stayed were forced to convert to Catholicism. Some 200,000 chose to leave. More than five centuries later, very few have come back. Today in Spain, there are only some 40,000 Jews. The head of the Spanish Federation of Jewish Communities told Spanish TV that the new offer of immediate citizenship for descendants had created a buzz in Jewish communities around the world. Isaac Kerub said, I can tell you that in less than a month, we have received about 6,000 inquiries among which I would highlight one from an American member of Congress. A spokeswoman for the Federation could not say who that congressman was, but one American who has looked into the possibility of becoming Spanish is Doreen Carvajal. Carvajal is a reporter with the New York Times in Paris. Some years ago, she learned she had Sephardic Jewish roots. She began to investigate, even moved to Spain, and wrote a book about her experience called The Forgetting River. Initial reaction was... um that it was really a thrilling moment, that there was this act of justice. They held this news conference with the top minister to say, we're offering automatic citizenship uh, for the descendants of, of all Sephardic Jews who left during the Inquisition. It was, you know, point, flat, done. And uh, I told my husband, I think I'm going to try and get the passport because it, it closes the circle. Um, you know, it's very poetic. But Carvajal says that when she contacted Spain's Jewish Federation, she learned she didn't qualify. Not yet, anyway. See, part of Carvajal's family was Sephardic Jew, but when they left Spain for Costa Rica, they converted to Catholicism, at least officially, out of fear of Spanish inquisitors. The Inquisition hunted down and persecuted Jews, even in the far-off Spanish colonies. So Carvajal is technically a descendant of converts, or conversos. She's not a practicing Jew herself. 
She says she was told she'd have to convert to become Spanish. I felt like it was another act of being forced. And here were these people who were the descendants of the Newsom, the forced ones, being told, you have to do this, you have to be a certain religion. So what happens if you're a secular Jew? It was a, it was a bittersweet moment for me when I realized that there, there were a lot of clauses there and it really wasn't an automatic offer for everyone. Isaac Kerub, the president of Spain's Jewish Federation, did not respond to multiple requests for interviews, nor has Spain's Justice Ministry commented on why some descendants are excluded from the citizenship offer. Carvajal says she's been left to wonder whether Spain just wants to attract Jewish wealth from known Sephardic enclaves that have survived in places like Venezuela and Turkey. Maria Josep Estañol is an historian on Jews at the University of Barcelona. She says she's not sure why Spain is splitting hairs now, but she says it is well known that when Spain expelled the Jews in 1492, it had a disastrous effect on the economy. Many Iberian Jews were wealthy textile traders and jewelers and bankers. In the Imperio Otomano, the Sultan Bayaceto said that... At the time of the Ottoman Empire, the Sultan was said to have commented that he couldn't understand why a great Spanish king like Ferdinand would go without the Jews, who were such a source of wealth, and just give them to him. The Sultan was very pleased to receive these Jewish families, who went on to enrich his empire. In theory, enticing them back now might give a boost to Spain's shrinking economy, although Estañol doubts many families would reestablish roots in Spain. Given how disastrous things are here today, I'd advise against it. It's also been suggested that Spain made the offer to appease Israel after Madrid supported last year's successful Palestinian bid for a seat at the United Nations. Whatever the motivation, some Muslim scholars are denouncing the offer as unfair. They point out that their ancestors were expelled from Iberia too just a few years after the Jews, but no one's inviting them back. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Still ahead, Swiss train riders set your watches, but watch your wallet on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. And for today's GeoQuiz, soup's on. Well, not just any soup. Ramen, to be exact. Almost every region in Japan has its own kind of ramen. For our geo-answer, we want a big bowl of the cloudy, milky-looking ramen that comes from Japan's southernmost island. Besides being known for its top ramen, this island's also known for being the location of Japan's most active volcano, Mount Aso. And that volcano makes for an island with many hot springs. So whether it's hot soup or hot springs, you'll find it on the Japanese island we want you to name. But you will have to get your order in quick. The answer's coming up in a couple of minutes or so. Now, let me explain why I'm talking about food. See, whenever I eat in a really nice restaurant, I always wonder, where does a head chef like to eat when he or she is off work? 
You can always ask, I suppose, or you can turn to a 600-page guide called Where Chefs Eat. It's just come out. It highlights restaurants all around the globe, from Auckland to Zurich, recommended by more than 400 top chefs. We'll speak with the book's editor in a moment, but first my producer and I decided to put the guide to the test and try one of the recommended places in our own city, Boston. It's a small place called Sapporo Ramen, located inside a shopping mall. That's where owner Taiji Mineo explained how he and his staff make their signature soup. You know, we started this recipe uh, about uh, three and a half years ago. It's a very modern recipe, uh, chicken-based, really thick soup. Uh, Yeah, I think uh, it's very hearty, you know? It's very satisfying. A few years ago, our soup was uh, pork-based, like kanto. Kanto region is like a Tokyo and Yokohama region, that style. More like a clear kind of a soup. This is uh, more of a southern type. This is uh, from uh, actually like the Kyushu Island. Kyushu style. Um, I'd like the house ramen, please. Uh, no thanks, just the soup. Thank you. So if you look into this very complex bowl of soup, you've got this broth that we just heard about, cooked with chicken bones. You've got some corn floating around in here, lots of it. These delicious noodles, wheat noodles, sliced pork, seaweed, scallions, and that's pretty much it. But the combination is magical. There's nothing else I can say about it. So I'm not going to be rude, but in Japan, to slurp means you appreciate the ramen. Mm. So deserves it. So we got a great bowl of ramen, as you can hear, at Sapporo Ramen, which, by the way, is recommended by Boston chef Ken Oranger. And you heard Sapporo Ramen's owner give the answer to our geo-quiz, too. It's the Japanese island of Kyushu. Now... Back to the food. The man behind Where Chefs Eat is food writer and restaurant critic Joe Warwick. The chefs that prepare very complicated, intricate food and work in very upscale restaurants, when they go out, yeah, they want something more immediate, they want something more casual. They will go and eat at those other fancy restaurants, but they'll do that almost as homework to see, to keep up with the competition, to Mm. see what their peers are doing. But when they want to relax like us, they want to relax somewhere laid back and fun. So we've got places in there like Noma, places like the French Laundry, like Per Se. But that's really just a small part of the guide because, let's face it, everyone knows about those places. Right. They're, they're in lists of you know gastronomic destinations all over the place. To me, what's really interesting are the little fast food stands. I mean, we've got a herring wagon in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. We've got a place that does something called a wet burger in Istanbul, which is a burger that they steam in this chili sauce. I often hear stories, and I don't know how many of them are true, that, you know, so-and-so celebrity chef has only a six-pack of Heineken and a jar of Dijon mustard in their fridge. What is your own experience as a food writer and critic? How many chefs actually enjoy cooking at home? I, I think a lot of chefs don't cook at home, but I think increasingly they eat out, and I think chefs either eat well or they don't eat at all. And they have got opinions on where they want to go for the best burger, where they want to go for the best fish and chips, you know, street food, things like that. I think chefs are particularly good at picking late night places. Um, I mean, I went to Blue Ribbon Sushi here in New York, which is open until four in the morning. Oh, the Izakaya place. It's supposed to be really good. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, uh, and I think chefs, because of their working hours, are really strong on late night places. But I think they do like to eat out. And I think that, you know, the days of the chefs being artisans that are chained to their stoves and don't get out and don't travel, those are gone. And these mm. guys, they get out, they travel. They're passionate about cooking, but they're passionate about eating out. And when they go somewhere, you know, they want to go to the best place, <laughs> you know, for whatever. Right. Two and a half thousand restaurants recommended in here, places like London, Hong Kong, Sao Paulo. But what is the most remote place featured in your guide? Because it's 600 pages plus, and I haven't gone through the entire thing. We've got a place called Favakan, which is up in the north of Sweden. That's a chef called Magnus Nielsen. Uh, way, way, way up in the north of Sweden. Near right, the, this program near the spoke with Magnus Nielsen uh, not too long ago. So I think he's, he's probably, you know, the most remote restaurant. We've got a lot of places in Iceland. We've got places in Newfoundland. Um, we've got a lot of places in Lima. We've got a restaurant in Bali. You know, New Zealand, um, we had a great response from the chefs as well, which I think is someone, you know, no one really thinks about New Zealand as being a place to go for restaurants. But actually, particularly in London, I know we've got loads of um, chefs from New Zealand who are really contributing to our restaurant scene. So, you know, they've got great ingredients there and they've got a really interesting restaurant scene there as well. Um, so, yeah, all over. But probably Magnus Nielsen's place, which unfortunately I still haven't been to. That's on the list for this mm. year. Um, sounds to me probably the most remote. <laughs> what, what's the best recommendation you've ever gotten from a chef? I've just come back from a road trip um, in Charleston, uh, down South south. Carolina, I, yeah. in south Carolina. I drove up, um, drove in a car up from uh, Florida all the way up to New York which was fun. But we stopped in Charleston, South Carolina, went to a very good restaurant there called Husk. And there are numerous uh, great restaurants in Charleston. Yeah, and, and then went to the Hominy Grill, which, you know, at the other end of the scale, which was a, you know, famous kind of breakfast place, had my shrimp and grits. Yeah. So, you know, those were places, Hominy Grill was somewhere I was recommended by Sean Brock from, from Husk. So that was a great recommendation that came from a chef recently. Well, listeners, if you want a restaurant referral, this is a place to come. Got a lot of great recommendations here. Joe Warwick, the editor of Where Chefs Eat, a guide to chefs' favorite restaurants. He spoke with us from New York. Great to meet you. Nice to talk to you too. Thank you very much. You can see a video of my lunch at Sapporo Ramen here in Boston and get a list of where radio hosts eat. At least this one, my list of favorite eateries, is at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman, ahead on the world, the unlikely journey of a former Guantanamo detainee. And later, Dutch singer Carol Emerald tells us about the song that sparked her career. It was just love at first sight. I just so loved this song, and I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna be the demo singer of a really, really big hit. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This afternoon, John Brennan finally got his chance to face his critics in Congress as confirmation hearings for President Obama's choice for new CIA chief got underway in the Senate. The hearings were suspended briefly after Brennan's opening statement was interrupted by protesters. Brennan's nomination has been a lightning rod for critics of the administration's policy on unmanned aerial vehicles, or drones. He's been 
been instrumental in crafting that policy as White House counterterrorism chief. One of the most controversial parts of the policy is its effects on civilians in countries like Pakistan and Yemen. Many have been killed alongside the targeted terrorism suspects. And on top of that, entire populations in areas where strikes often take place are traumatized. Asia Bundawi zeroed in on that part of the story in Sana'a, Yemen. Down a dimly lit corridor in the only burn unit hospital in Yemen lie the severely burned bodies of Sultan Ahmed Mohammed and Nasser Makbuta Sabuli. They're conscious, but barely able to speak out loud. Sultan tells me his name and mutters just one sentence before closing his eyes. The plane struck me, he says. I met the two last September. They were victims of an attack that officially never happened. At the hospital, Abdurrahman Barman, an attorney who runs Hud, a Yemeni human rights organization that advocates for the rights of drone victims, explained to me how this minibus driver and his cousin from a rural town in central Yemen ended up barely conscious in a hospital in the capital. There was a minibus full of 14 people, including a woman and her two children. They were headed to the city. Two of the airplanes without pilots arrived. One of them came low enough that the passengers of the bus could see it, and it released the first missile. After it hit the car, there were still some people alive. And then the second missile was launched, and it killed everyone except three. Immediately after the strike, the Yemeni government announced that it had killed al-Qaeda militants. But families of the civilian victims, in coordination with Houd, threatened to bring the burned corpses of the victims, including two children and their mom, to the presidential palace. Soon after, the Yemeni government changed its tone, and an official from the president's office called the strike an accident. This was a rare confession by Yemeni officials, but the U.S. government has never officially acknowledged its role in conducting any drone strikes in Yemen, much less disclosed how many civilians have been killed. But according to the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, drones have killed more than 1,100 people in Yemen alone. But no one's really sure. The Yemenis feel that they're no longer um, safe at their homes, roads, and marketplace. Ibrahim Qatabi is a Yemeni-American human rights activist with the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York. He says that while it's difficult to know for sure the number of civilians killed, one thing is certain the impact the program has had on life in general in places like southern Yemen, where drone strikes can occur weekly, is profound. They have the feeling that any of them can be killed at any given time for crimes they didn't commit. There's no rule of law that will protect them, so they feel unsafe. Many critics of the U.S. covert drone program say people in Yemen today live with a collective sense of insecurity, waiting for disaster to rain down on them from the heavens at any given time. And that, says Noreen Shaw, tears apart the fabric of society. She's director of the Human Rights Clinic at Columbia University Law School and author of the report called The Civilian Impact of Drones. People are afraid of sending their children out uh, to go to school. They're afraid of going outside and, and maybe engaging more with you know, other parts of the community because of that fear. There's a, a deep psychological impact on people because of the sound of drones flying overhead. Under international law, governments are supposed to investigate attacks that kill civilians. But because the drone program in Yemen doesn't officially exist, the U.S. won't acknowledge the strikes. So no drone strikes means no dead civilians and no compensation to survivors or the families of victims. As a result, Ibrahim Qatibi says Yemenis lash out, looking for justice. What happens usually is that if the tribe is strong enough, 
they will block roads to main cities and they will protest in the cities, prompting the government to actually send some sort of mediators, government officials, and tribal leaders to try to work out some deals with the families of the victims. Ibrahim says that oftentimes tribes who have never had any affiliation with al-Qaeda or animosity towards the United States will attack U.S. targets to avenge the killing of their family members. Many in Yemen say that the drone war is having the effect of creating more militants than it's killing. That point is hotly contested in the halls of Washington. But Noreen Shah of the Columbia University Law School says that what is certain is that in places where drones are used regularly, people believe that the U.S. views their lives as disposable. Because the program isn't acknowledged, because there's no recognition of the harm, people come away with nothing. We're not just talking about losing the chance at compensation. That's incredibly important, but we're also talking about losing the chance at possibly offer some kind of recognition and dignity to the families that have been left devastated. Nasser can relate. He's the minibus driver who survived the September 2nd strike in Walid Rabah that killed 12 civilians. His legs were so badly burned in the strike that he can no longer drive or earn a living. I recently reached Nasser's brother by phone in his village in central Yemen to see how the survivors were getting on with life. Ahmed al-Sabouli told me that the Yemeni government provided Nasser and Sultan with just enough money to travel to Egypt to get treatment for their injuries, but that not much else has been done since then. Thank God they're okay now. As far as their health, they survived, but they of course feel they've been oppressed. We still don't know why they were targeted. It was a complete shock, and no one knows why this happened except for God. A person involved in criminal things should be afraid, Ahmed told me, but an innocent person should not have to live in fear like this. For The World, I'm Asi Bundawi in Yemen. For more on drones and that leaked Justice Department memo setting legal guidelines for drone strikes, come to theworld.org. Drones are one part of the U.S. counterterrorism policy. Another is the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The U.S. has kept Guantanamo open to hold what it considers high-value terrorism suspects. But it also detained 22 ethnic Uyghurs, Muslims from western China. They were captured near the Pakistan-Afghanistan border in late 2001. The U.S. government ultimately decided the Uyghurs were not enemies, but they remained locked up in Guantanamo because they had nowhere to go. Returning to China wasn't an option. China considers them terrorists. So in 2006, Albania agreed to take five of the Uyghurs. Nate Tabak recently met up with one of them. His name is Abu Bakr Qasim, and he works in a pizza place in the Albanian capital, Tirana. Abu Bakr Qasim was a little concerned when Albania granted him and four other Muslim Uyghurs political asylum. I knew Albania was a communist state, so in Guantanamo, when they told us we're going to Albania, I was taken aback. I was thinking, we already left a communist state. The communist state was China. Kasim says he fled in 2001 to escape China's persecution of the Uyghurs. Kasim actually knew something about Albania growing up in China. Chairman Mao and Albania's communist dictator, Enver Hoxha, forged close ties in the 1970s. It even inspired a song, Tirana Beijing. I had this idea that Albania would be a huge country because when I was young, I would see many movies on Chinese TV because of the strong relationship with Albania. 
But when he arrived, Kasim says he had trouble believing he was in Albania. For one thing, Tirana seemed too small to be a capital. I looked at a map to find Albania, and I couldn't find it. I asked people, can you point to Albania on the map? And it was a tiny dot. He also learned that Albania had become a democracy years before, and that it was a majority Muslim country. Another thing he soon realized, Tirana is teeming with pizza parlors. Kasim had never heard of pizza before and didn't speak Albanian, but he wandered into a place and somehow managed to order a pie. It was delicious, and the owner didn't charge me for it as a sign of respect. These days, pizza is Kasim's life. There's barely enough room for Kasim and a co-worker in the cramped kitchen of this halal pizzeria. Kasim is making his specialty, the mixed pizza. It's basically the works, with a few regional touches, Albanian smoked beef and Bosnian sausage. This isn't a hard job, but it gives you pleasure when people enjoy the pizza you make and when they give you a tip. Kasim is speaking Albanian, a notoriously difficult language to learn. He says he took an Albanian class after he arrived in Tirana, but the pizzeria has been a much better teacher. At first, I was learning by trial. Sometimes I made mistakes, and guys would make fun of me. It was definitely a learning process. He says his customers are always asking where he's from, so he tells them the history of the Uyghurs. As Kasim works on a pizza, a relatively old friend takes a seat at a table outside. Ahmet Dursun also runs a restaurant here. He first met Kasim and the four other Uyghurs in 2007. One of them showed up at his Turkish restaurant to ask for directions. Dursun invited the Uyghurs in for a meal. They were able to communicate because the Uyghur language is related to Turkish, and they told their story. <laughs> It was one of the most difficult meals of my life. When they were telling me of their experiences, it was tragic to hear what they had gone through. Dursun invited a TV reporter to interview Kasim and the others. Kasim says that before the interview, people were sometimes nasty to him, thinking he was a terrorist. But that changed. People got to understand our plight, and from that moment on, it got better. Now the Uyghurs no longer live in a refugee camp. Kasim says he has Albanian friends, and he has a wife here, another Uyghur, and an infant daughter. Well, life is better. There still are problems. He only works part-time, and the state aid he receives isn't enough to support his new family. Kasim says it's hard to find work between the high unemployment and his background. It's difficult when you go to apply for a job. They ask me where I'm from, and I tell them I'm a Uyghur. So right away they make a connection with Guantanamo. Guantanamo continues to weigh heavily on Kasim. Three of his friends remain locked up there. There are still three Uyghurs living in Guantanamo, and no country is willing to take them. Still, he doesn't seem to bear any resentment toward the U.S. or his guards. When we told the Americans we were Uyghurs, the situation improved. They didn't have any problem with us. They actually treated us quite nicely. Some of our jailers would give us candy bars. Kasim also takes pains to avoid criticizing the U.S. for not releasing him sooner. I don't know what took so long, Kasim says. Maybe there were political reasons. Then again, Kasim might be wise to avoid sounding critical of the U.S. in Albania. It's an overwhelmingly pro-American country, 
and Albania is hosting the Uyghurs at the request of the U.S. Even if he wanted to, Kasim can't really go anywhere else. He doesn't have a passport. And if he were to return to China, he would almost certainly be arrested. For The World, I'm Nate Tabak, Tirana, Albania. The brutal gang rape and death in December of a young woman in India sparked a big conversation about sexual violence there, but also all around the globe. Recently, the BBC asked young women in several different countries to chronicle their experiences on a typical night out. The women recorded audio diaries about the problems they encounter and about male attitudes in their country. Stories have come from the West Bank, Brazil, and Canada, for example. We're going to play an excerpt from the audio diary of Jackie Kemigisa. She's a 20-year-old journalism student in Kampala, Uganda. On a recent evening, she put the books down and headed out to a club for a girls' night out with her sister. How I decide what to wear depends on where I'm going. So usually my jeans are my cover clothes. You bring out this whole image of, hey, back off, as in that is it. My opposite of wearing jeans, I have this very black dress. It molds onto you. It's, let's say, skimpy. You get people throwing, um, I would even call them compliments, they're insults. They would ask you, how much do you sell? It's a comment for a prostitute. It's, a, it's actually happened. Usually when you do a girl's night out, you expose what your mama gave you. So sometimes you just feel you need to feel good about yourself. I mean, if you have a nice body, why not show it off? As I walk out of my door, it's dogs until you walk up to the, like, the Buddha Buddha stage. That's when you get the men. And they'll just stare. This is a Buddha Buddha stage. Buddha Buddhas are like uh, motorbike taxis. Uh, it's an easier means of getting around the city. If the Buddha Buddha guys are not busy, then you are the subject matter. <laughs> but if I came out in my jeans, you notice I don't get any attention. But then if I'd come out in a black dress, then probably I'd actually have all the attention from the Buddha Buddha guys. I call this place my home bar. Those places where you know the manager, the waitresses, and the DJs. And I'm just coming to meet a couple of friends. Feels like home. Ah. I trust how this my lady. A couple of friends saying hi, and then a few guys looking at you and appreciating either your style, I mean your sense of dress. It's not outrageous. So you usually go out with your mind knowing this is going to happen, whether you like it or not. It's sort of the way the society is. Men. Get, tend to get away with whatever they can say, you know. I think that what the men need to get at the back of their mind is that when I go skimpy or outside to wear a body hanging dress, it could be to get the attention. I mean, we can't help the attraction. If you're hot, you're hot. You can't run away from that. I mean, if you like me, you talk to me nicely. It's simple, it doesn't cost something. They should enforce it in the law somewhere. An excerpt there from Jackie Kimagisa's audio diary, part of the Girls' Night Out series on the BBC. You can hear her full story and others from young women in Ramallah, Rio, and Ottawa. That's all at theworld.org. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Swiss are known for being orderly and efficient. Things work, well, like clockwork. The trains are no exception. In fact, they are the epitome of Swiss efficiency, and the Swiss are justly proud of their rail service. But that love affair is turning sour because of a seemingly minor change in ticketing policy. The BBC's Imaging Folks has lived and worked in Switzerland for years. First, tell us what's good about the trains in Switzerland, Imogen. Well, what's good about the trains is that it's a really integrated transport system. So you can go from the big bustling city like Zurich right up into the Alps, into the smallest village. You're never waiting for hours on a platform, you know, for your connecting train. So what's changed? Well, what Swiss Federal Railways did just over a year ago was introduce a policy where you can't buy a ticket on the train anymore, which which sounds fine. You know, there are other ways to buy tickets. You can buy them online. You can even buy them with your mobile phone if you have a smartphone. You can buy them um, from a machine at a train station. In theory, that all works really well. In practice, sadly, it's not been working so well. Right. I gather you have a firsthand experience of how it doesn't work so well. My local train station um, does have a ticket machine, and that's where I nearly always buy my ticket. One morning didn't work. It spat my credit card out. I was having a a fairly long journey going all the way to Geneva. It's over 100 miles. I thought, well, that's fine. I have a smartphone. I've not tried this before, but I'll try it now. The system didn't work quite as fast as I would have liked. But by the time I got onto the intercity, the express train to Geneva, I had my ticket. The ticket checker came along. And this is what's interesting. You can't buy a ticket on the train anymore, but you certainly have to show a ticket. Mm. Fair enough. She came along, showed her my e-ticket, and she was furious. Why? And I, I'm not exaggerating. She said, your ticket isn't valid. I said, why? She didn't explain to me that well, but she kept saying, it's not valid. I think you bought it on the train. I said, well, no, I bought it on my phone, actually. A few weeks later... I got a letter and a really big fine, $200. And what they said was, the proof that I had bought this ticket, the authorization from my credit card company, arrived four minutes after the train left the station. That means I bought the ticket on the train. I don't quite see it like that. I'm sure you don't. Are you the only one this has happened to? No. In in fact, the newspapers are full of it. There are all sorts of different examples. There's the young guy who bought two tickets on his smartphone, one for himself and one for his his aging grandfather, because they were going to go and have a nice day out in the mountains. Then it turns out apparently you can't buy two tickets on your mobile phone. So they find the poor 80-year-old grandfather. One of the things that is making the passengers particularly angry is that it's people who've really tried very hard to stay within the law and buy a ticket are getting fined all the time. About a thousand passengers a day, and they're making $2 million a month out of it. Passengers are asking themselves, is this really about cracking down on people who are really trying to dodge paying for a ticket? Or is it just a way of making money um, in a perhaps not very fair way. So that's what's causing the real anger. And, you know, we're waiting to see what will actually happen. Are you going to appeal this fine? Um, It's in arbitration at the moment. (laughs) Let's put it like that. There's an ombudsman for the Swiss Railways, and and I have sent mine there, and uh, we'll, we'll wait to see. The BBC's Imogen folks, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. 
Finally today, the singer Caro Emerald has captivated audiences in Europe with her infectious songs. They recall the vintage jazz sound of the 40s and 50s. But as reporter Marissa Neff tells us, the Dutch singer is only just starting to make a name for herself here in the U.S. Before she became Caro Emerald, she was Caroline Esmeralda Vanderloo, a young vocalist studying jazz at the Amsterdam Conservatory. One day she met two producers who needed a singer for a demo of a song. It was called Back It Up. I sang the song. It was just love at first sight. I just so loved this song. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be the demo singer of a really, really big hit. She says it all just clicked for her. This moment with Back It Up was definitely one of those moments where you just know this is the kind of music I would like to make. I knew that like in that second. So began her transformation into the smoky jazz chanteuse known as Caro Emerald. She and the producers decided to make a full-length album and put it out on their own. Deleted scenes from the cutting room floor is a highly stylized nod to the big bands and jazz divas of the 40s and 50s. Here's the first track, an infectious ditty called That Man. Caro says it's inspired by 50s heartthrob James Dean. The thoughts make me hazy, I think about Despite the project's distinctly retro leanings and Caro's 50s pinup style, she says she has no desire to go back in time. There's really, really no reason for me to, to want to be anywhere else because I do think that we live in a great time. It, it wouldn't be fun to be a woman in, in the 40s and 50s, no. No, no, no. We are free. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else but here. Caro's debut has been a smash hit throughout Europe. It's even managed to dethrone the king of pop on the Dutch charts. Michael Jackson's album Thriller was on number one in the album Top 100 for 26 weeks back in 1983. And our album uh, actually broke that record. We, we were there for 30 weeks. And this is when it really, you know, dawned on me, like, wow, this is crazy, you know? You don't mess with the king of pop. The American market has remained largely oblivious to her musical appeal. But that seems on the verge of changing. Caro and her band just wrapped up their first U.S. tour, capped off by a sold-out show at New York's Les Poissons Rouge Club. And Back It Up is starting to get stateside airplay. With more songs coming down the pike, don't be surprised to hear this Dutch songstress sashay her way onto the U.S. charts. But as for toppling Thriller's record on this side of the Atlantic, that might be a different story. For The World, I'm Marissa Neff. Hey, handsome, have you got the time? I've been watching you. Since the moment you arrived A white suit from London And shoes from Paris 
gonna spend about an hour with me. Retro music calls for a retro style video. Check out Carol Emerald's cool video for Back It Up. You'll feel transported back to the 40s, whatever that felt like. That's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.